0: Welcome to Oncopharmacod. I'm your host, John Bazaar. Thanks for joining us. We are going to get back to our Foundations in Oncology Pharmacy series. And we're talking about doxorubicin today, and we're going to start in a castle, and we're going to end in the toilet. Doxorubicin is a drug that we use a lot, and uh, I've spent the last few minutes trying to make sure I cover everything, and I'm afraid I'm not, because there's there's a lot about doxorubicin to fit into... A 15 or 20 minute podcast. So, apologies if I forget something, but I'm gonna hit uh, the high notes here, and we're gonna start with the history of doxorubicin, and you could even go back to, um, you know, the, the incidental or serendipitous finding of penicillin. Uh, on the last of this series, I talked about how cisplatin was a, a serendipitous discovery. You know, it's like the penicillin of, of of oncology because it was found uh, while not looking for uh, a cancer drug. Like, penicillin was found not looking for an antibiotic. Well, there's maybe even a more direct link to penicillin with doxorubicin because penicillin is a product of a fungus. And after uh, society and and scientists learned about that, there was this big push to scour the earth for other potential drugs that were produced by uh, microorganisms, especially fungi. And uh, so that's kind of where we got doxorubicin. Now, before we get to that story, let's get the aliases out. So brand name, uh, adriamycin, at least in the U.S., uh, hydroxydonorubicin. And the only reason that's important is that's why the is the H in CHOP and chop regimens, hydroxydonorubicin. And then also the red devil, or the little red devil as well. Um, so if you go back and uh, PubMed docs were limit clinical trials, the first thing you'll find is something from 1972. Its its history goes back a little bit earlier, and we got to go to Milan, Italy, uh, where a group of researchers, uh, f- the uh, Institute for Research uh, for Farm Italy, uh, and I'm not going to try and, and say that in Italian. Well, they uh, researchers there had discovered a very... Um, unique form of Streptomyces which they dubbed uh, Fi 1762 which stands for the Pharmatalia Institute of Research. And they found this Streptomyces strain near Castel del Monte in Apulia. Maybe I'm saying that correctly. So they found this really unique Streptomyces which is a fungus. They found this unique strain of it uh, in the earth around this castle. And it produced some really interesting things. And what they eventually were able, uh, through several years of finding this, uh, or um, of studying this, they basically were able to find Donna Rubison. From that, they then were able to get doxorubicin which is what we're talking about today. And uh, I found a really nice article going through the history of this that I'll tweet out later. And in July of 1968, the first vials of doxorubicin were delivered to Professor Gianni Bonadonna. And that name, Bonadonna, is important Oncology Pharmacy uh, because of the birth of adjuvant chemotherapy and solid tumors, which is going to be uh, the next podcast we do in our Landmarks of Oncology Pharmacy series. So Doxerbs in itself has a couple different... It's a... Um, you can almost think of it as three drugs in one. It, it works in three different ways. Uh, it's, it, it intercalates DNA, so it gets in there between the, the, the base pairs. Uh, interfering with DNA synthesis. It's a topoisomerase 2 inhibitor which is believed to be its main mechanism of action as well as producing free radicals uh, which has probably some contribution to its activity as well as um, may be responsible for some of the unique toxicities uh, with doxorubicin, of which there are, are several that we need to talk about. It's a pretty broad spectrum uh, anti-tumor drug. We use it um, probably most commonly uh, in the adjuvant treatment of breast cancer. We use it for, for both Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. Uh, leukemias. not really so much for AML, although uh, we use, we use Don usually for induction treatment for AML. Sarcomas, osteosarcoma, uh, it's the A and the MVAC regimen for bladder cancer that probably nobody uses anymore. Uh, before we had platinum etoposide, we had CAVE which was a regimen for small cell lung cancer that had anthracycline, endometrial cancer, lots of other things. And I'm talking about conventional doxorbicin. There is the liposomal doxerbicin as well that's used for ovarian, maybe some for myeloma. Conventional doxerbicin has activity in uh, myeloma as well. The drug can be given IV push or as a continuous infusion. Uh, some places maybe favor the continuous infusion method, uh, hoping to take advantage of the cell cycle specific nature of the topoisomerase II inhibition, as well as probably getting uh, less na- nausea and vomiting and less myelosuppression by giving it over a continuous infusion. And certainly the experience we have with liposomal uh supports that. Dosing can range, you know, 50, 60, 75 milligrams per meter squared, 40 milligrams per meter squared, but if we think of 50 milligrams per meter squared as kind of the standard dose, give or take, it's going to help us when we look at the cardiotoxicity in a little bit. Um, now, of course, it's a traditional antineoplastic, so it's going to have our hallmark toxicities of myelosuppression, nausea, vomiting, mucositis, alopecia. By itself, it's a moderately emetogenic drug. Uh, at higher doses, uh, it is, uh, or sorry, in combination with cyclophosphamide, the new guidelines uh, suggest we treat this as a highly emetogenic drug. And it is a drug that can cause delayed nausea and vomiting, so you certainly want to have an NK1 antagonist or dexamethasone plan to prevent delayed nausea and vomiting or lanzapine uh, The unique thing that probably everybody in oncology and pharmacy circles know is cardiotoxicity with doxerbicin. And there's more to it than just saying cardiotoxicity. If you ask uh, you know, pharmacy students that, what do we monitor for cardiotoxicity? And I just did this this week in class. Um, what do we need to test? What do we need to monitor for cardiotoxicity? And you put up a multiple choice question. If you have uh, you know, left ventricular ejection fraction monitoring and EKG, it'll be 50-50. But it's heart failure is what we worry about. And it's a cumulative lifetime dose. The more doses you get, of doxorubicin, the more likely you are to have heart failure. Now you can see ECG changes or EKG changes while you're giving the drug. In fact, during my training, I was told you don't ever really want to get an EKG in someone getting doxorubicin because it'll just confuse the picture because it can do some funny stuff uh, to your EKG. So every uh, oncology pharmacy is going to have a folder on every patient. And it's important um, for keeping track of how many doses of dox groups they've received. And one thing that I find that oncologists and physicians in training uh, get confused about is that when we track this, we do track it in the units of milligrams per meter squared. So if you think of an average dose, say for, for lymphoma, for, for CHOP or RCHOP of 50 milligrams per meter squared, eight cycles of that is gonna get you to four, a cumulative lifetime dose of 400 milligrams per meter squared. Six cycles of RCHOP is going to get you to a cumulative lifetime dose of 300 milligrams per meter squared. And at 300 milligrams per meter squared, the, the risk of heart failure is 1 to 2%. As we go up to 400 milligrams per meter squared lifetime exposure, those numbers go up to 3.5%. Uh, at 450 milligrams per meter squared lifetime exposure, the risk is now 5 to 8%. So we've gone from 300 to 400 to 450, and our risks of heart failure have gone from one point one to 2% three to five percent and five to eight percent we go from 450 to 500 milligrams per meter squared lifetime exposure the risk jumps of heart failure to six to twenty percent so the curve and you probably have all seen this landmark curve from from archives really starts to that curve for for lifetime incidence of heart failure just turns and goes straight up around 500 and 550 milligrams per meter squared Conventionally, most people would say 400 milligrams per meter squared is your lifetime limit. That doesn't mean you couldn't push beyond that, but the benefit better far exceed the risk of heart failure in those patients. And the treatment of anthracycline-induced heart failure is the same as other forms of systolic heart failure. It's it's ACE or R, beta blocker that sort of a thing. Um, You know, this is a really interesting area of research and, and how to prevent this and what causes this. Conventionally, people have thought that it's the free radical production that causes this Um, because we know that if we block those free radicals, we can decrease the risk. Uh, We know that mitoxantrone, which is an anthracine dione, less free radical production, has less cardiotoxicity, although still has some cardiotoxicity. Um, But there's also some data that maybe it's direct topoisomerase 2 inhibition that does this, although the fact that other Tope 2 inhibitors don't do this kind of argues against that. Anyway, it's an interesting area of research, and certainly beyond uh, uh, getting any deeper into that for this pod. It also causes secondary leukemias, uh, potentially MDS, and it usually has about a two-year latency period uh, before that happens. That's a whole nother, uh pod you could do on secondary leukemias with cancer cells as well. Uh, there are some drug interactions um, to to potentially worry about. How about I say this? This is something that I remember learning briefly in school, but it's not anything I ever encountered in my career, and that is an interaction with, with paclitaxel. And when I describe this, you'll understand why it's not something that we worry about a whole lot. One is there aren't a lot of regimens, or any that I know of, where you give doxorubicin and paclitaxel together now. But uh, it has been demonstrated that there is delayed clearance of doxorubicin uh, if it's given as a continuous infusion after a 24-hour infusion of paclitaxel. So we don't do that anymore, so it's probably not a concern. And then in theory, there are interactions with antioxidants. So think about high-dose vitamin C that a a cancer patient may take to try... Uh, because they've run their internet. This is, antioxidants are good to prevent cancer. I have cancer, I'm receiving chemo. It's probably good for me to take this high dose of vitamin C. In theory, that could decrease the effectiveness of doxorubicin by, uh, by binding those free radicals that are part of how doxorubicin works. Always important to talk to patients about herbals. Uh, it is a potent vesicant which means that if it extravasates, if it leaks through a blood vessel, or if the, the line is placed incorrectly, it's gonna cause really bad tissue necrosis. This is the worst vesicant of the chemo drugs we commonly use. Uh, if that happens, uh, the first thing that you would do besides stop the infusion is ice on the area, okay? As we're gonna talk about in a second, doxorubicin, it's called the red devil because it's red, it's bright red. So I think of red, red is fire, fire meets ice, that puts out the fire. Okay. Game of Thrones references notwithstanding. So if you have an anthracycline extravasation, ice will be the first thing that you do. Um, another thing that is important to, to remember with this, it's hepatically metabolized. And yes, it's important for all drugs known as hepatic, renal, otherwise. What is a little bit unique about doxerbicin is that the dose reduction for hepatic dysfunction is a pretty low bar. So for chemotherapy drugs, we tend to look at total bilirubin. And if that's elevated, we think of dose-reducing a drug that's metabolized hepatically, whether it's a taxane, a vinca, whatever. For doxorubicin, those dose reductions start at a total bilirubin of 1.2, which is just 20% above normal. It's a pretty low bar at which you have to dose-reduce. So there are times that you might not think this patient has hepatic dysfunction that warrants a dose reduction, but they may for doxorubicin with a total bilirubin of only 1.2 or 1.3. That's an important point, I think, to remember. That brings us to dexrazoxane, which is an iron chelator. That's kind of how doxorubicin pro, um, produces free radicals. So, dexrazoxane is a whole story of itself. It's a failed topoisomerase 2 inhibitor, but because of this kind of free radical scavenging effect, it does and can prevent some of the effects of doxorubicin. There are two brand names of dexrazoxane. one is ZynaCard, which is approved to prevent cardiotoxicity in patients who have received a cumulative lifetime dose of 300 milligrams per meter squared. Lifetime doxorubicin. Again, at that uh, cumulative exposure of doxorubicin, the risk is one to two percent of heart failure. Now, a couple. One thing I want to say about cardio prevention or cardio protection with doxorubicin. There are some data um, from a metastatic breast cancer study where they were given patients doxorubicin in one group. The other group got doxorubicin and dexrazoxane. And the group receiving doxorubicin and dexrazoxane had a lower response rate than the group just getting doxorubicin by itself um, causing us to think maybe this dextrozoxane is preventing the doxorubicin from having as potent of an anti-tumor effect so just because you get to 300 milligrams per meter squared lifetime doxorubicin doesn't mean you need to use dextrozoxane it's a risk benefit discussion with the patient and with the physician there's another brand name of, doxor, or of dexrazoxane, uh, which is Totect, which is approved to treat extravasation injuries. Um, I won't go through the dosing and everything. Two things I'll say about that. The way that the drug got approved, the primary endpoint in the study was decrease in the need for surgical debridement. That's how bad uh, anthracycline extravasation can be. It can require surgery to remove all the necrotic tissue. Uh, two, remember the first thing you do for an extravasation injury is you put ice on it ice is going to cause vasoconstriction and then if you try to give the antidote to help uh, minimize the effects of that extravasation if you still got the ice on there that vasoconstriction is going to keep the antidote dexrazoxane from getting there so you gotta make sure you take the ice off 15 minutes before you start uh, your dexrazoxane administration and finally I mentioned doxorubicin it's bright red uh, and it has an inactive metabolite and it is also bright red and that can come through in the tears and can come through in the urine, which means patients need to be counseled that after they receive doxorubicin, I'm confusing myself. After they receive doxorubicin, uh, their tears uh, may be red and the urine will be red-tinged. So I told you we're gonna start at a castle and we're gonna end in the toilet uh, with that red metabolite of doxorubicin. That's all I have for today. It's been a busy week, a lot of teaching. I hope you enjoy the pod. Keep listening. Go find us uh, on iTunes. Uh, Rate, review, tell us what you like, what you'd like to hear more of. And uh, follow us on Twitter uh, at FarmDeetNibs, my personal account, at UncleFarmPod for the show. Thank you and take care.